You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new for he says the old is good. Well, in a world that completely, utterly disagrees with everybody else on everything, I think I have a phrase that everybody can agree with. And that phrase is, I could always use more joy. I could always use more joy. Even that person in your life that might be almost like annoyingly joyful all the time, even he or she would say, I could use more joy. Everybody agrees with that. The the issue that's very different is how do you actually get there? In other words, where do you find that joy? And the world says very clearly what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to look inside of you. You're supposed to look at yourself, figure out what would make you happy, what would bring you joy, and then you are supposed to do that, which is why we now have people that walk around in complete, utter selfishness. Because we've been preaching for so long to say, just go figure out whatever makes you happy, whatever you want, look within yourself, and then go do that. And we're training people in selfishness. I also, um, when we start to look inside, if all we have is something that we have um, come up with, one of the things we know is, is we constantly need something new. Because the newness of something that we that will or we perceive will bring us joy can, can be exciting. And then once we get it, it usually ultimately is not going to be that fulfillment. And so it may disappoint. And so we just want a new thing, the, the next thing, whatever it is. And so besides selfishness we see in our culture, you've also got a real lack of commitment to, to jobs, to marriages and family and friends and communities and church. I, I want something new. I want something different. That'll bring me Joy, when we look inside ourselves, that's what we think. But the biggest thing is that you can be too easily robbed of it. If it's something that I have created, that I have perceived, then circumstances can change and I can be robbed of it like that. And Christians see this very differently. Where do we find joy? Um, First thing I'd say is uh, Christians know that we're fallen and broken and so we don't fully trust our own assessment of ourselves. In fact, what's, what this is rooted in, this idea of just look at yourself and find joy, find happiness, what, where that's rooted is the assumption that I know myself better than anybody else. And I got to be honest, I don't know if that's actually true. In my case, I've been married to the same person for 22 years. And as you can imagine, we've had times in our marriage where I've said something like, oh, I've said something like, you know, this, this set of things, whatever it is, it really gets me madder than it does most people. I feel like I just react real angrily to that. Like maybe I overdo it a little bit. And this woman that's known me for 22 years is like, really? Hmm, say more, <laughs> right? Because she's looking and she's going, are you just now figuring this out? I, I assumed you knew it and so I didn't need to bring it up. 
And so there's things about ourselves that we, we can be self-delusional, that we don't even know about ourselves. Have you ever, have you ever um, looked in yourself to find something that you thought would bring you joy and then ended up regretting it and saying a big whoops at the end? And all your friends are around trying to not say, we told you so, like we saw that. Yeah. So if we're just looking at ourselves to find joy, there's no way it's going to fulfill us. And the great news is the scripture calls us to something very different. God calls us to true joy. And one of my favorite reasons why I get to talk about this today is because the word joy did not appear in that text one time. You heard it read. But that's all that it's about is the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. So let me show it to you, show you a better way, show you where we find true joy in Luke chapter 5. So they're in Levi's house. Uh, If you remember, Jesus had just been walking by the seashore, and he called Levi or Matthew. He had called him to follow him. He leaves everything and follows him. They go to Levi's house, and um, there's all these tax collectors and sinners, and they're having a little party. And the scribes and the Pharisees do not like it very much, the uber-religious Uh, people in the culture do not like it. And so they said to him, to Jesus, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So the contrast of followers of these other people, they, they fast and yours are in here eating and drinking. And they say, this is not the way that it should be. So Let me try and describe um, fasting, because you've got the Old Testament, then you've got about 400 years between the Testaments, and then this is the beginning of the New Testament that we're looking at here. So in the Old Testament, what they would have understood about fasting was you would fast for a few different reasons. Um, You would... would, fast in what's called repentance for your sins. You would forego some food, and then every so often, involuntarily, your, your stomach would just, you know, I want food. And, uh, and, and that, would, that would spur you to think on your sin. It was a way of saying, I know I have wronged God, and it's, it's, um, it's a reminder of your sin and your error. Or if you're in mourning, uh, like mourning, like weeping. If you're in mourning, people would do that as well. They would go around and they would, they would fast. It's something that they are saying, God, we want you to remedy this. We are in the wrong, you are in the right, and we long for you to remedy it. Really what they were doing was pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come. So you got the Old Testament that is, that is fasting in a yearning looking forward to the, when Jesus would come. And then you have this 400-year period between the Testaments and all these Jewish Pharisees and leaders and scribes looked at the Old Testament and said, that's nice, let's add some more to it. And they started just having all their own branches of Judaism. And they would just add and add and add and add and add. And so um, fasting became this symbol of, this outward symbol of righteousness, largely. But one of the things that fasting is most closely associated with, this abstaining from food in the Old Testament, was something called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So yom is the Hebrew word for day, And Kippur is the word for atonement. So Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's in Leviticus 16. It's the only time in the the first five books of the Bible that I could find that it talks about fasting. And you fast in accordance with the day of atonement. 
And what they would do is the priest would go, before he offers a sacrifice for everybody else, he would have to offer a sacrifice for just himself. They had to slaughter a bull and have a blood offering for his sin. And then they would have these two goats and they would cast lots. And one of the goats would then be killed and his blood would be spilled for the sin of the people to appease the wrath of God. And then the other one would be sent off into the wilderness. And the symbolism is there's a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God towards sin. And then also the sin of the people is now on the scapegoat that now is out in the wilderness. So God has removed the sin from us. And during this time, the day of atonement is the first time that I could find that really talks about fasting. You're supposed to lament. You're supposed to remember your sin and what Christ has done. And then by the time it gets to the New Testament, fasting was really just a, um, it had largely become a thing you did for show. It was walking around all gloomy. In fact, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus has to tell the hypocrites, the Pharisees as well, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. These are people that are walking around that are fasting, that are dragging, that are just looking terrible because they want everybody to go, oh, look at that Pharisee. What a, what a, what a good guy. He's fasting right now. And God says, they've got their reward. They're not doing it for me. They're doing it for the applause, applause of people and they're getting it and they've got it and that's it. And so <clears throat> he has to really take this idea of fasting and repurpose it in their minds. But the issue is when the Pharisees are looking and they're upset, the question is, what are they actually upset about? What are they actually upset about? And the rest of the text we see, here's what we're gonna see. Fasting is supposed to make us yearn for something that is yet to come. And he is looking and going, you guys are feasting, you guys are celebrating as though the Messiah is here. They have become so enamored with just practicing and practicing and practicing and going through the motions and doing the fasting that literally here is Jesus right in front of them and they're going, what are you guys doing? We should wait until Jesus is here before we, uh, before we do this. Like I picture them going in and going, Jesus, what are you doing? The Messiah has not yet come. We're waiting for the Messiah and Jesus is going, it's me and I'm here. And so they're upset by this because it's really a declaration by Jesus saying, I am the Messiah and I am here. And so the Pharisees, they liked their old traditions and they had all their traditions and all their rituals so much and there's comfort in that. But the problem is they had missed the person right in front of them. It's the object of all the practices they've been putting in place. We're from the South. We know people and maybe it's some here too as well. You go to church because it's a thing you're supposed to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I like music and uh, I like being here and it makes me feel better. Whatever, whatever the reasons are. And we go through something that's good, coming together and gathering together as God's people. But we can do that over and over and over. And you probably know, I know people that have done it for years and years and years and are doing a good spiritual practice, but have missed that this is about building a relationship with Jesus Christ. Or personal Bible study, jumping into personal Bible study and really, really being um, kind of enamored with it. In fact, there's some churches that don't, and there's even, they call them Bible studies, but churches that don't teach the Bible and, um, and those churches have their own issues. But did you know there's also an issue with churches that really explicitly constantly teach the Bible? 
Because what we can do is we can become so enamored with the scriptures and the knowledge of this book that we miss the author of the book. Don't miss Jesus. That's what he's saying. You know anybody like this? I call them spiritual hamsters because I just picture them like the hamster on the wheel, just like going and going and going and going, and they're doing all the good stuff. They're doing all the right stuff. They're reading their Bible. They give whatever you're supposed to give. They serve. They show up at church. They are good. They give to the community. Oh, the whole list of things. It's just I'm going to do more and more and more and more. And in the meantime, Jesus is going, it's about me. You're missing me. This is a call to stop and say, are my wheels just spinning like crazy? And I need to pause and just go, where is Christ in this? So they're saying, why do your disciples eat and drink instead of fasting? And Jesus says, there's no need to fast. I'm here. Jesus said, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's his answer. Can you make the wedding, uh, the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So let me just explain um, just clearly weddings in that culture. Because if you're like me, you've been to weddings where um, maybe it's sometimes it is just as joyful as joyful can be. And then sometimes you're at a wedding maybe going, I hope this lasts. I hope this works out. And maybe you've had to put on a little face to try and have some fake joy. That is not the case in the Bible. Let me, let me show you. Did you know that the, um, the Bible opens and closes with a wedding? When God is trying to communicate his joy to his people, that is, the, that is the activity that he uses. He uses a wedding. It opens with a wedding. The first bride, Eve, gets presented by her father, so to speak, God the Father, to Adam, and they are married. And then at the very end of the Bible, we look, and then you see that one day, one of the most glorious truths is we will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Because as he's trying to describe what glory is going to be like, he cannot think of a stronger way to do it than to say, picture like a wedding. That is God's heart for this. And the Jewish people really understood this over time. So... Um, they, uh, um, let me give a couple examples. They would look, so usually they were arranged marriages. And so you would look and, and the whole town would come out and celebrate because what this couple now has is this, this indicates stability. This indicates a new relationship. This indicates this is now a new family unit that is going to, um, that is going to raise children together that they would know Yahweh, that they would know the Lord as well. This was a huge celebration. This was, in their minds, an absolute once-in-a-lifetime thing for these two. They would have um, the bride and groom. She would typically wear a veil, and then they would both have crowns on. So it's like this royal coronation type of a celebration, like everybody just celebrating them and celebrating their life together. They would have a betrothal period for about a year beforehand. And if there was any sexual activity in that time, the penalty was stoning like they took this seriously. This is the building up to the wedding. They would give a, um, the parents would give a gift to the parents of the bride, a dowry, and they would really see it as a covenant or alliance between these two families. In fact, the most traditional vow I could find, the most, um, the most used vow that a husband would give to his wife is, um, she is my wife and I am her husband from this day and forever. They would have these processions that would have tambourines and dancers, and they would have 
torchbearers going and they would be having all these shouts of celebration. The whole town is there. And get this, it was not like, what time is that wedding? We've got to go and it's going to be an hour or so. Um, this was a feast that would last seven days minimum, usually closer to 14 days. Sounds pretty cool, actually. You just go sit and you eat. So when you're sitting and eating, like that is the epitome of just this merriment and joy and happiness. And, and that's what he's talking about. So that's the wedding. So can you imagine this whole thing that especially culturally is everybody's there. The king and queen are walking down the aisle and everybody's celebrating them. And then people come up and they're just dumping food on your table. And, uh, and then somebody goes, no, thank you. I'm fasting. One commentator says to do that would puncture the joy of all who were there. And so what's Jesus saying? Very simply, he's, when they say, why, why isn't everybody fasting? Well, it's simple. You were fasting, yearning and longing that the Messiah would come, and I'm here. Why would you go fast? I'm here. That's the time between Christmas and the cross, but he's gonna say this. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise and there's gonna be another period. So it's appropriate for Christians even today to fast, to yearn for the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, can you explain this in a way we understand? Glad you asked. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the, old, uh, from the new will not match the old. So what he just said is if, you're having, if you have an old garment uh, and it gets a hole in it, that you go, oh, I've got this new one here, snip, 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 and you take it out and then you try to put it there. He says, instead of having one with a hole in it and one nice new garment, you now have one that has a patch that clearly doesn't match, so it's no good. And then your new one, now it's got a hole in it. So he's saying why, he's trying to give them an illustration to say, why would you do this? And what Jesus is telling them is you have this old way of living and now I, Jesus Christ, am here and you're trying, you're trying to live like Old Testament people, but the New Testament is upon you. I am right here. And he gives them another example. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. There's a great reference in Job where, if you know the story of Job, Job and God are kind of going back and forth and then God kind of says, stop, <laughs> I'm God, okay? Like Job is trying to sort of argue with him and Job has all these words that he wants to say and he's talking and you can just get the imagery, like the words are just bubbling up in him and he's like bursting to try and to say them and to speak them to God and he's not sure what to do with it. And he says, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. When the wine would ferment, it would expand. And if you put it back in these, in these old wineskins, it would just burst everywhere. And everybody knew that. So again, he's saying the New Testament, the new covenant is here and you're still living like I'm not here. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. You know what's really going on? The Pharisees are saying, we need to be gloomy about our sin. We need to live a life that is just a drag. 
And Jesus is trying to give him an illustration to say, live it like a party, live it like a wedding, live it like the most joyful thing you can imagine. I am here. The Messiah, the one that you longed for and you kept hoping for, the one that you were saying these promises are coming to fruition in him. He's saying, I am here. And if you and I can get this, if we can really start to understand God's faithfulness then, his faithfulness today and his faithfulness yet to come, we should live as people with incredible joy regardless of what happens outside these doors. Christians should be marked by joy. One of the ways I think this would play out is um, Pharisee, the Pharisees missed what was happening right in front of them. And um, <clears throat> I see we have very creative ways to miss on what's happening right in front of us as well. We, we pray for things. God, if you would do this, and then when he answers it, we go, yeah, yeah, and move on. We miss the sovereign Lord of the universe just answered that prayer. You know one of the ways this happens today? One of my pet peeves, and I always, I, I'm sorry if you do this, but going to like 4th of July fireworks, and I watch people watch the fireworks, and they watch them like this with their phones up. Let me first just say, um, it's not going to look anything like you think it does when you go watch that video later, all right? So it's gonna be, it's gonna be like the memory is gonna be sort of faded. It's not gonna be um, as, as great as you think it is. And then also the other thing that's happening is in the moment, instead of, uh, instead of just savoring it, it's, oh, I gotta get this like this, and you're looking at it through a screen. Instead of doing this, setting the phone down, and going, I just want to be here and savor this and enjoy this. I had, uh, I had one the other day. I had one of my kids come up to me, and I was, I was on my phone at the house. And um, she came up, and she, um, she said something to me. And just, I have a question. And this, that was this week. And I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys you have to do this, so I have to do it too, I guess. And uh, <clears throat> I was in the, if you're like middle of an email and you're, you're on, you're, oh, I figured it out and you're like on track and then, hey, can I ask you a question? And you're like, oh, no, or yeah, go ahead, but I'm going to keep going and not really pay attention. Like that's the temptation. That's the pull. And I thought, what if I did this? What if I, and I set my phone down and I looked and I kid you not, when I started thinking about what a joy it is that I get to have in this, I mean, all my kids, but this one in particular was there in front of me. Did you go, what a joy it is to have her. And when I just looked and I started to see her, I was like, it was this moment, she probably thought dad was just being a weirdo, but I'm like looking into her eyes and I'm just like soaking this in and I'm like getting teary going, God, you have blessed me in this way with this child. And to stop in that moment, to put the phone aside, to put the distractions aside and just go, yes. We see beautiful nature that only God, could only come from the mind of God. And oh, click, 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 click. Take a million pictures. I'm gonna just set it down. Be in the moment and see the beauty of what God has given us. The things that he gives us all along the way that give us joy, we've got to recognize them. I'll give you, um, I'll give you one example for me. Um, I, I sort of bring it on myself, but um, at the same time, um, uh, I, I love, love, love Christmas. In fact, in case you're wondering, it is 83 days until Christmas. I've had a countdown that's in my office and it started at 364. So if you ever need to know and you're up at the church, just pop in the office and you'll be able to tell. Um, I love it. I think I love it for all the right reasons. I mean, I do. We always, we're, we watch, you know, we watch every Christmas movie, Elf and Die Hard and the like, all those. And... Um, 
we, we do all that. Nikki's great baking, and so we bake entirely too much food, and it's glorious, and we have friends over and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, Patrick Heck, a guy who goes here, he told me, because <clears throat> we have to plan Advent, like, starting several weeks ago. We had to start planning Advent, because you got to get, like, musicians and put the, get the calendar together and start planning and everything. And then Patrick said, he said, I love it. He said, the only people right now that are thinking about Christmas in mid-September are churches and Costco. That was it. And, uh, but we've, we have, we've had to start planning it. And I was talking to, one, to a friend about it, and I, said, um, uh, and I said something about Christmas. I think he saw that and made a little, little snide remark about it or something. And he said, we get it, we get it. You like Christmas and, and all that. And I have to say, I got a little worked up. And I said, listen, do you understand what happened at Christmas do you understand that the whole world is lying in wait and yearning and longing for the Messiah? Then they have 400 years of silence and the, the, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, in Bethlehem, a light breaks through and Jesus Christ comes to earth. God made flesh there. We should be reading the Gospels instead of just going like, oh, and here's Jesus, and now what did Jesus do? We should be going, oh my gosh, this is God in the flesh that came to earth to demonstrate his love for us. And do you know what he came to show? He came to show that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Day of Atonement, that he is the one that didn't need to offer some bull sacrifice before, uh, before he would go and offer himself on the cross. He gave himself on the cross. He's goat number one that sheds his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then he's also goat number two that says the sins are removed from the people. They are forgiven in me. He says, I am the fulfillment of everything that you've been longing for. They're fulfilled in me. So yeah, I like Christmas a lot. <laughs> and I have a goal. And no, we're not gonna start talking Christmas. It's early October, I understand. But I'm just gonna warn you. One of my goals for Advent is to infect everybody with so much Christmas joy to understand what Jesus Christ has done. We don't have to look within ourselves thinking we know ourselves better than anyone. We don't need something new to bring us joy. We look back at the old of what Christ has done on our behalf. When you do that, this is one of the reasons Christians have historically um, been as a group the most selfless people. And yes, there's plenty of data. Christians are the ones overwhelmingly that adopt children in need. Christians are the ones that um, when, when blood banks need donors, they come to pastors to ask because they know that Christians historically, no matter how politically correct or whatever it is, they know that Christians are the ones that historically will line up to help and to sacrifice for others. Christians help with the homeless and poverty more than anybody else, sending people overseas more than anybody else, prison ministry, donating more money to good causes. We don't live a selfish life. We know what Christ has done, and in that joy, we live sacrificially. And it, when our joy is from Christ, you cannot be robbed of it. No politician, no law, no war, no emotion, no anything can take from you the joy that we have in Jesus Christ because of what he's done. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the joy that we do have in your son. 
that he is the fulfillment of the day of atonement, that we know that our sins are forgiven, that they are paid in full, that we can be in relationship with you, and our guilt does not reside with us. It has been taken by another. And I pray that we could learn to stop and slow down and get little bursts of joy, see the things that happen as gifts from you and have moments of praise to you. Father, for some here that may be thinking about being joyful seems um, unreasonable and unrealistic and it, or maybe even impossible. I pray that supernaturally you can break through and you can help us not just plaster on a face and pretend we're joyful, but to get something deep within us that can just marinate in the joy that we have in knowing you.